Welcome to Stories That Stick, a podcast series about the stories that shape us. Can you imagine a princess with a fro or with braids? Like, that would be so empowering. Hey guys, it's Ade here, your host for Stories That Stick. In today's episode, we have Billy D, an award-winning public relations expert who's managed PR campaigns for Amazon, United Nations Women, Ministry of Sound, I could go on and on. And she lives with a highly stigmatised mental illness, borderline personality disorder. She works every day to fight against the stigma, raise awareness and change perceptions. New listeners, please know we start all our interviews talking about death. So if this might trigger you, then do skip ahead to approximately the three minute mark. Finally, please do rate, review and share this episode if you like it. Death. Mm-hmm. Talk to me, how do you feel about death? Um, I mean, how, how deep do you want me to get on it? I don't want you to go into any headspace that you're not. Now, I, I really think as a society, we should be talking more about death and dying. And I think the reason why it's so taboo is because we ignore it. Um, but it happens to everybody and it can happen at any time. And I think the way society frames it makes it actually a really tragic experience. And of course, death is a tragic experience, but I don't think it needs to be. So I think this is an important conversation. But for me personally, um, for a few years, I was obsessed with death, like obsessed with it. But I suffered very seriously from depression and anxiety. And for some reason in my head, I just thought that death was kind of an end to it, an end to my issues, an end to my worries. And I think it was only when one of my friends sat down and said to me, why do you actually want to die? And, and, and actually questioned me about it. And I realized I, I didn't at all. I just think I just wanted a break. How do you prevent these thoughts? I think it's to find a, a lust for living again. And I think the issue with... Did you say lust? A lust. Okay, yeah, like that. A lust <laughs> for living. I think so many people just go through the motions, especially our generation. We've been raised for a world that doesn't exist anymore. We're not satisfied just going to the same job day in, day out, sitting at a desk, not doing anything meaningful. The way I got out of that negative thinking was to actually practice gratitude Um, Think of the little things every day that I was grateful for. Tell the people that I love that I did love them. And also be kind to people and give, do good work, make other people happy. And slowly as I started doing that, my life started gaining more meaning. And I could see the potential that I had to help people and make their lives worth living. And that's what got me back on track. So I do believe that what you do in this life does count if you do want to be remembered or you do want to have a legacy. Do you want to be remembered? I do, very much so. Okay, well, we'll get into that. We'll talk (laughs) about your legacy. Shall we go to the next chapter? Yeah, let's let's do it. At the tender age of zero to ten, who was Billy? Paint us a picture. Do you know what? I think, funnily enough, those first ten years are what have completely shaped my life. Um, My mum was the first black woman on Australian TV. So I was born out in Australia. My dad is white Australian. 
I was, I think, one of the first mixed race babies to ever be born at Sydney Hospital. And they thought I was jaundiced and tried to put me in an incubator because they couldn't understand why the colour of my skin wasn't the same as my mum's or my dad's. That's how how backwards it was. So I was born into that kind of environment. And then by the time I was five, my parents had the most horrendous uh, divorce that dragged on for years. When you're that age, your parents are your world. And I kind of lost both of them, or I felt that I could lose them at any time. And I think that really set the footing to the rest of my life. And then when I was eight years old, we suddenly moved to England. We moved to the countryside, Norwich in Norfolk. And then I went to school there, and that was the first 10 years of my life, really. You wrote here, you were told the story of Nelson Mandela. How did that come into play? Um, I was told the story of Nelson Mandela from my mum. In December 1990, after Nelson Mandela was released from prison, he did a tour of the world and he went to Australia. And my mum, being the only black journalist in Australia, was sent to interview him. And on the day she went, she brought me with her. And she remembers walking to the interview and I was screaming and screaming and crying. And there was this big entourage of people and they stopped and turned around and suddenly Nelson Mandela walked through and he said... I haven't heard a baby cry in like 28 years. And he was like, can I hold your baby? And mum was like, of course. And he held me and he said, oh, is she mixed race? And mum said, yes. And he said, your baby is the future of the world. So mum would always tell me that story, I think, when I felt very different or felt less than the people around me, which is incredible. But I also learned sort of the rest of his story you know you have to you can't just tell a kid that story and leave out why he was imprisoned for 27 years so I think on the one hand the story gave me pride but on the other hand I wondered what the hell this world was that I was living in and as a kid it scared me I think it really really frightened me what the hell I was going to have to face in the world (laughs) interesting and I guess you started to understand that a little bit more towards your teenage and adult life yes Before we do get into that, whenever you speak about your mum, even though you speak about her profession, you don't necessarily mention her name. No. Can I ask why? So my mum is Trisha. She had a very popular chat show um, in the UK for, I think, like 10, 15 years or something like that. Um, But I grew up as Trisha's daughter. Like, that's how I was known. Like, when I went to school, all the teachers were like, oh, that's Trisha's daughter. The kids were like, that's Trisha's daughter, you know. I was Trisha's daughter, and I think as a teen, when you're trying to find your own identity, trying to you know discover who you are in the world, and people keep telling you you're just someone's daughter, it's frustrating, and it also I think has quite a deep psychological impact. You're always comparing yourself to your mother. My whole life, I've measured my achievements next to hers. It's not a healthy way to live at all. So I think I do talk about my mum, but maybe subconsciously omit her name because I think I do want to be known as. Billy and not just Trisha's daughter anymore. No, understood. You do have your narrative Mm. and we're going to get more into that. So tell me about Billy during her teenage years. I had um, quite a privileged teenage life, actually. When we were in Australia, we didn't have much money. We lived in a small house. My mum struggled a lot financially. Then she got her big show when we came to England and suddenly we lived in this house. It had an indoor pool 
and the indoor pool area was like twice the size of the house I used to live in <laughs> in Australia. So even though I think at first it was like, wow, this is amazing, it actually quickly became quite negative because it was such a big space. So everyone in my family would go off to their corner of the house and you wouldn't see anyone. So I kind of felt like even though I had this like apparent luxury, I felt very, very trapped uh, in a world that I, don't, I didn't really feel like I belonged in. Um, and that kind of tallies up in my experience at school. I was always just such a misfit. And at that time in Norfolk, um, for a lot of the kids there, I was like the first, you know, black person that they'd ever met before. And I never forget, I went away one summer, I think the summer between year seven and year eight, I went on this really strong course of treatment, like cleared up my skin. And I thought, right, I'm going to walk back into that school. I'm going to be the most popular girl. I'm going to be the prettiest girl. I'm going to make them, you know, regret everything they said to me. And I did it, and I walked in. <laughs> <laughs> and Say with your chest, Billy, and I did and it. I did it. I did, and I had it in my head. I was like, all I wanted was to be cool and to be the popular girl. And um, I don't think necessarily that made me a nice person. I think, unfortunately, the way I saw to do that was to push people down um, in order to elevate myself. And And actually, I think that was my first... I'd had lots of experiences of racism, but actually, and I really want to talk about this, I I was racist, and I think without realising it, there was another girl in my year at high school, she was from Ghana, and then in order to be popular for some reason, I thought I had to distance myself from her, because I thought people looked down so much on black people and had such horrible views and the discrimination, and I thought, well, I have lighter skin, you know, I was straightening my hair at the time. I was like, if I can put as much distance between me and this African girl as possible, then, you know, maybe I'll be more popular. I look back and actually I have apologised to her since and, and she can't even remember it, which is good. But I like look back with absolute horror in my heart. Um, you know, I remember like, singing Bob Marley songs at her and taking the piss out of her braids. All of this stuff um, because I felt so insecure and I felt that the only way to feel more secure and I guess closer to whiteness was to sort of put somebody else down. So that's just one story. There are, there are other things I did as well. Um, I think my quest to be cool and popular actually made me a really uh, horrible person. What's interesting about you being racist is you going home to a black mother. Mm. Are you not having conversations about your identity, your race? No, it was, it was, um, I think for my mum, um, she did talk about it a lot, but I think there's one thing talking about it with your mum and a different thing experiencing life and sort of trying to survive and trying to navigate those things on your own. Even though mum talked about it, we were never in any kind of community. We, we had no black friends, there was no black family nothing no community no culture so it's only when I was 18 and I moved to London and I started being around black people that my perception started changing it definitely took my own journey and my own sort of soul searching for me to come to the place I am today in this decade I guess or you know well in teenage years you talked about Shakespeare the Tempest the Tempest yes Tell me about this story and why this had an impact on your life. 
there's a man called Prospero. He's kind of like a sorcerer. He gets exiled from his land. He's on a boat with his daughter, Miranda, and they get shipwrecked on an island. And suddenly they meet the local inhabitants. One of them is called Caliban, and he's presented as this absolute monster. He doesn't understand their language, so they call him stupid. Nonetheless, he helps them. He sees that they're lost. He gives them food. He shows them where's the best shelter. And they make friends with him, and they teach him their language. Eventually, they fall out, and he becomes this monster again. And I never forget, there's just this one incredible line where Prospero, the, the white man who's come to Caliban's island, is calling him a monster and calling him all these abusive things and Caliban just turns around and says you taught me language and thus I know how to curse for me this is like the whole story of colonization the whole story of how in history indigenous people have been sort of used for you know the resources that they have or the knowledge that they have and once they've kind of given that all, they are then outcast. And I never, ever, you know, this is Shakespeare. <laughs> and I couldn't believe the story of, of what I was hearing. They were like, wow, what, <laughs> you know, Shakespeare was writing <laughs> this back then. <laughs> and people still don't understand the message now. And I think, you know, oh, I, I can't Yeah, no, I, I, no, I understand. That was anything that you saw within that yes. play that you were like, I felt like Caliban. I felt like a monster growing up my whole life. And I think I really identified with his character in that way. But it's not an isolated thing. You know, in, in fairy stories and stuff I would listen to growing up and read growing up, I would always kind of identify more with like the evil queen or the ugly stepsisters. How interesting. Or, yeah, because it's that complexity. And I think because that is what happened to me. I know fundamentally that I'm a good person but I have done bad things and behaved in bad ways, I guess, to survive. I sort of know you a little bit because we've had a couple of meetings. Yeah. And the initial conversation in which we had was because you are a brand ambassador when it comes down to mental health. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. Um, I'll be blunt. When I was 17, my behaviour was bad. I did a lot of things I was ashamed of. Uh, I felt very alone and isolated, and I did try to take my own life. As soon as I did it, I, I changed my mind. I knew that I didn't want to die, but something in that moment clicked, and it really affected me, and it made me look a lot deeper into myself and how I'd got to that place. And it was at that point where I started researching mental health, mental illnesses, because I thought... Perhaps that could be some kind of way to explain what I was feeling, what I was going through. Um, I did find some information. I did speak to people about it, but I was told that I was lazy. I was looking for excuses. I was being a drama queen. You know, I was functioning. So why the hell would I want to put a label on myself, which would make my life difficult? And basically, I was completely deterred from even going down that route. Um, but then what happened in the 10 years after that was tragic. I self-medicated more and more, um, smoking weed every day, drinking at least a bottle of wine every day, um, cocaine, <laughs> MGMA, things on the weekend. I was barely sober, I think, for 10 years. And I was sad, like really, really sad. And I was doing great things. Like my career was going really well. 
you know, got my dream job. I was like PR manager at Ministry of Sound at the age of 25. I'd worked with like some of the top business. I was doing amazing, but I was just, I just hated myself and I hated my life. I felt that I was living a lie. I felt that no one really knew who I was. I think because I'd worked so hard to hide the sort of sad part of myself from the world that I felt that every time I stepped out into the world, I was acting or putting on a play and everything just took so much energy. And then after about 10 years of doing that, um, all my life support systems fell away. So I was in a long-term relationship that fell apart, got made redundant from my dream job. And then my parents got divorced again, which then triggers stuff from my childhood. And all these things are falling away. And when I'd lost everything, I realized that I did not like the person I was left with. Eventually, I went and got diagnosed. Um, I've been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder and complex post-traumatic stress disorder. What yeah. is, do you mind what explaining? Because yeah. you said um, complex post-traumatic stress disorder. Yes. So PTSD is like if, a, if you're in a car crash or a bomb goes off or, or somebody dies, it's like one event causes trauma, which has a knock-on effect. Complex post-traumatic stress disorder is when you're enduring trauma for a very, very long time and it doesn't ever seem like it will end. And you kind of adapt your personality and you're, you build coping mechanisms to survive in that long-term traumatic environment. And the issue is, is when that trauma stops, your behavior doesn't. For example, with me, the drinking, the self-medicating, once I didn't have any trauma, it only became more and more destructive. Um, and as well with sort of borderline personality disorder, what it comes from is, again, childhood trauma. And it's where children have grown up in a normally abusive environment that can be sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, or even neglect. And I think for me personally, I did experience a lot of emotional neglect. And when I was older, emotional abuse as well on a, on a long-term sort of scale. So basically all borderline personality disorder is, is, is your personality has been shaped through trauma and the behaviors that saved you when you were younger are now killing you when you're older. I know it's different for each individual, particularly what triggers, but are you aware of what triggers you? Yes. Can, so you have been equipped with the tools and resources to sort of help you deal with said condition? Massively, massively. I mean, I have had um, three and a half years of therapy now, so that helps. Whoop, whoop. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh God, I, yeah, go to therapy. <laughs> Everyone should go. And I think the thing with a lot of people who have... I hate the term personality disorders, is we are very high functioning in general. I think most very successful CEOs, celebs, artists, they all have an element of this. Um, and I think, honestly, it's what makes me really successful. I think the skills that I learned to cope with my trauma have made me excel in the job that I do today. For example, I do a lot of crisis management. So this is where we're <laughs> going to get into. We're going to get into the present. age 18 to 21, now in the university stage. What was the dream? What were you thinking? I never had any idea what I wanted to do. Um, I went to Royal Holloway, University of London, and I studied English literature only because it was my favorite subject at school. I wanted to do drama, but my mum was like, do an academic subject, you know, like most black parents. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I ended up with an English literature degree, which is entirely useless. 
Is that um, not relevant to what you do? Because you have to write a lot, surely. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it is It is relevant. <laughs> but any, anyone can do PR, if I'm honest. It's about communicating more than sort of a skill for writing, I would say. Right. Um, but yeah, I, I never had any idea what I wanted to do. I graduated. I went and lived in Thailand for a bit. And I taught English out there. Worked in Mango clothes shop for ages. I just was wandering around aimlessly, not knowing what I was doing. And then, actually, to give her credit, it was my mum. She turned around and said, do you know what? You would be excellent at PR. And I was just like, oh, shush, mum. And she kept driving it at me. I think she was a bit worried about where I was going in my life. And and she just kept telling me how good I would be. So I did an internship and I loved it. Um, And they hired me. I ended up joining their business team. So I worked with corporations, entrepreneurs, startups, getting their founders in the press, on TV, to managing their reputations. Mum was right. I did have a natural ability for it. And I think actually it's because I did grow up watching her, you know, be in the public eye and do interviews. And I saw it when things went wrong. Um, Similarly, I've seen her when she's done really great things and I've seen how many people's lives it changes and I've seen the good that it does. So it's, it's a natural thing. Okay, well, is there any like fond memories within this time? Yeah, um, I did have this big breakdown, as, as I mentioned before, I lost my job, I lost um, my relationship, everything that mattered to me. And it really forced me to sort of reassess who I was. I was on Instagram and I stumbled across some like, pro-black accounts and, and black women empowerment accounts. Do you recall them? Because I'd love to give like, you know, we're all yeah, about credits. Yeah, one of, one of them, I think the main one for me was Shaka Bars. Okay. You know, Shaka Bars. I don't know what it was that I found his page. And I just remember trawling through it. And I was just like, what? All this history that I'd sort of, you know, been taught. And then I was learning this whole other side that I'd never even heard of before. And I just started getting involved. I started actively seeking out people to network with and be with. And then um, I ended up going to Jamaica for two weeks on my own to discover my heritage. And literally, as soon as I got there, everyone was like, is that your real hair? And I was like, no, like, it's a weave. And they were like, <laughs> they were like, are you ashamed of where you come from? Are you ashamed of who you are? And literally, that is the first time I ever asked myself that. And I realised that I was. It was quite a difficult thing to go through. And then I remember I came back and then um, Meghan Markle, you know, and Prince Harry and that whole thing was out. And I remember someone asking me, they said, oh, how do you feel about, you know, a mixed race princess? And I said, you know what, it's just a shame that she doesn't wear her natural hair. And my friend turned around and said, you've never worn your natural hair. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's a fair point. What are we teaching the younger generations? I, I wish I'd seen that when I was a kid like can you imagine a princess with a fro or with braids like that would be so empowering um so yeah I changed my life um I grew up my hair um I would never dream of straightening it again I'm proud of my heritage and my roots and I try and educate people about black history learning about and loving that part of my life has really changed my like my well-being is so much better um rather than feeling like this misfit that I felt like my whole life I feel like I actually belong now I have many mixed race friends and they tend to sit in two camps. Mm. One either just says, I'm mixed. They don't even try and, you know, go to either side. Mm -hmm. And then I have the others that actually tend to gravitate towards more of the minority, quote unquote, side of their dual parentage. I'm hoping, and I'm sure you're not, negating the white side of your 
culture or are you? Because you haven't mentioned your dad at all throughout this conversation. Mm. Um, I never really grew up with my dad. Um, so he was a white man and I associated that with abandonment, I guess. And then my stepdad, who was another white man, as I said, I didn't get on with him very well. Um, so I think my like whole experience was was warped. I would maybe say I still find white men very difficult. I still get anxious if, you know, a white man at work is telling me what to do. I, I can't, mm. yeah, I, I don't react very well at all. Yeah, it's something I'm working on. Um, and actually, when I had that whole moment of self-discovery, I did completely switch. I think I spent my whole life before that actually trying to be as white as possible subconsciously. And then when I made that switch, I, I went really anti-white, I have to say. I mean, I'm quite an extreme <laughs> person, but I think I was so angry because I felt that I had been lied to and deceived and I hadn't been given the history or the education that, that I should have done. The fact that it wasn't even acknowledged by the white community, what they'd sort of put me through, I felt a lot of anger and a lot of disrespect and I didn't want to be around them and I didn't want to be associated with them. Now, a few years after, um, I'm much more balanced and I love people for people, like it doesn't matter what colour you are. But still, I think there's a lot of work to do to educate the white community on the impact that they have and what they can do to be allies. Because I think if we saw them being more understanding and supportive, there wouldn't be that divide and there wouldn't be that resentment. But they don't, in general, do much with their privilege. And that, that does make me a bit angry. Is there any stories? And I know there's plenty of stories because, again, <laughs> I always get my guests to give me one or two. You did mention. Nana of the Maroons. Yeah, so that's that's when I went to Jamaica. Okay, so tell us a story. Yeah, sure. There were black people always in Jamaica, but when the slave ships came and the colonizers came, they were driven into the mountains in the center of the island. And they were a strong community and they were never enslaved. And their most famous leader was a woman, Nana. And she was the one who decided, look, we've got to put an end to this. We've got to get these plantation owners off our island. She said, look, we can't fight them with guns because their guns are bigger than ours. They will just kill us. We need to be clever about this. So they'd heard whisperings of like voodoo, you know, that had come over from people from Africa. So they just kind of took it, added their own embellishments where they would slaughter livestock and paint blood over these houses and eventually I think 50% of the plantation owners in Jamaica were so terrified that they left. News of this happening managed to get across to Haiti which is where Toussaint Louverture started the Haitian revolution and then they started using the same tactics as Nana and Maroons. I just think it's incredible because the stories I heard were that sort of, you know, black people were just given their freedom. But when I went to Jamaica, I saw that they fought for it. And they didn't just fight for it, it was a woman leading the charge. And I just, it fills you with so much pride when you go there and you see the statues and the memorials. Okay, well, I want to wrap up. Um, you are a mental health ambassador, for lack of a better word. Are we missing a trick here by not asking you to speak more on that? Should I? I'm happy to. What I feel like in what context? Because this is more about story of your journey so far, you know. Mm, I think, no, I think I can do this. Okay. Um, okay, so that it's, it's been proved now, there have been studies done that trauma is hereditary. 
if you go through a traumatic thing and you do not resolve it, you probably will pass it on to your kids who will then pass it in some form onto theirs. And so it's in the same way that's kind of like stories are passed down, I guess. Trauma is passed down, but we do have the ability to rewrite our stories and rewrite our experiences so that we don't pass it along or that we pass something positive along. And I think that's how people should look at mental health and mental illness. And we need to have the insight to look at ourselves, analyze why we are, are the way we are. Otherwise, our children will be just like us. And is that what we really want? I mean, some people definitely want their children to be of carbon copy. I mean, that's probably a, that's a, yeah, <laughs> that's a whole whole therapy. Go to therapy. hundred <laughs> <laughs> percent. We talked about death, and let's just say there is a heaven. Mm-hmm. What materialistic thing will you take with you? Why are you shaking your head? If you saw my flat, you wouldn't be asking me this question. You'd <laughs> be like, like oh, thank <laughs> No, I mean, I've got a lot of like clutter, but there is no, there is no thing on this earth. I think that is worth taking apart from your loved ones. I mean, what? Yeah. And it's more about what you leave behind, I think. So I, I just, I can't really think of what I would take. Well, okay. Let's talk about leaving behind. What would you like to leave behind? Or let me rephrase that. If people were listening to your story on stories that stick, mm-hmm. what do you hope they take away? Um, I think the most destructive thing that any human can ever feel is shame. There's no purpose to it. It's horrendous. And I think so many of us walk around feeling ashamed. And since I learned to tell my own story, I've lost all of that shame. So I think the one thing that I would say people can take away is don't be ashamed of what you've gone through. All of your experience makes you into someone better and greater. Every tough thing you've been through gives you strength and resilience. But when you learn to tell your story, each time you tell it, you learn to love yourself a little bit more. Like own that. And I think, yeah, that's my message. Do you want people to get in touch with you? Um, I mean, you can try. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if I'll reply. Okay. Um, because I normally at this stage, I might say, do you want to just throw your socials or any way to continue the conversation without the need of, I guess, me? Um, we'll leave it at that. Okay, well, thanks very much <laughs> for coming on Stories That Stick. Thank you. Today's episode was produced by Ade Bambala. Sound designed by Chris Arise. And if you'd like to be featured on Stories That Stick, then please do get in touch. Hey guys, we want to provide some resources to help anyone who might be wondering about their mental health or feeling that they need some support. Billy has kindly provided the following. For support with alcohol, drugs and addiction, contact your local Change, Grow, Live. That's www.changegrowlive.org and all their services are free. Now, if you're concerned about your mental health, visit Mind for information on how to get support. That's www.mind.org.uk. And last but not least, if you're experiencing a crisis or an emergency, please don't hesitate to call 111 
to be connected to your local mental health crisis line or visit your nearest A&E. Thanks very much for listening to the end and I hope you enjoyed the episode. Bye.